Hello, everyone, and you're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo. I'm the founder and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre. I'm also a journalist and author, and my co-host is the lovely Alison Tate. Hello, everyone. I'm Alison Tate. I am a writer of fiction, non-fiction and features, and I spend a lot of time at my desk. <laughs> and what have you been doing apart from spending a lot of time at your desk this week, Alison? Well, unfortunately, I haven't been doing a lot other than spending a lot of time at my desk this week. I'm writing, I'm sort of writing words and words and words. I'm working on um, several features and I'm also trying to keep my manuscript on track, which means I'm kind of slipping words into crevices. I'm, I'm, if I've got five minutes, I'm bashing out a paragraph on my um, manuscript, which is quite an interesting read when I go back to it later on because everything gets a bit disjointed. But at least but at least it's there, you know, at least I've got something to work with. Slipping words into crevices. I love that. That's great. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> I what haven't, have you been up to? Well, I haven't been slipping words into crevices. Uh, this week, what has dominated my existence? Um, I've had a toothache, which, as you can oh. imagine, is quite debilitating and so that's been all-consuming. Having said that, it's um, been an interesting turn of events because very rarely can you say that a toothache can lead to a book deal. But what? Um, yeah, possible, possible. I'll, I'm keen to update you all in a few months when we see where this goes. But basically, I had this toothache and I was presenting uh, a workshop in front of a bunch of um, business people and you know you're presenting a workshop you're talking all day and you have a toothache it's not it's not fun and so during the break the MC who is like a business coach and is you know an MC and big in the business space uh, came up to me just to see how things are going and I said the first thing that came into my mind which was I have a toothache and um, he said oh and he goes, well, did you know I'm a dentist? And I'm oh. like, I just looked at him. I couldn't quite, it was a bit surreal. Anyway, he kind of gave me this, because uh, I didn't expect that the MC of this business event, whose main, his main job is being a business coach, was going to be a dentist. So, he, no. you know, fortunately he gave me this um, on-the-spot diagnosis and, you know, prescribed <laughs> what needed to be prescribed. So got me through the day, which is great. But um, I kind of thought this was a little bit fascinating that he was this business coach slash dentist and subsequently discovered that he is also a qualified financial planner, qualified uh, Anthony Robbins trainer, was in the Gulf War and cleaned up after the tsunami. And so <laughs> shortly after, my publisher actually said to me, you know, do you have some interesting people that um, I could follow uh, that would be that would make good author that would be um, good in terms of writing a book, some potential authors? And I immediately told her the toothache story, and um, and about this guy, and she just and she emailed back after you know looking him up and basically said, oh my god, you're absolutely right. What a fantastic background. Definitely going to follow him. So who knows? That might end up with a book deal. That's amazing. But that, doesn't that just go to show you the power of networking and yeah. how unexpected the links can actually be? I think that's amazing. Yeah. I look forward to the toothache and <laughs> biography or whatever, <laughs> motivational 
whatever. <laughs> but it's so true that um, one of the key ways to, you know, get work as a writer, but also, you know, achieve your goals as a writer, whatever those goals might be, um, is through networking. And I think it's one of the most underutilised resources, underutilised activities of writers, because you can do so much. And so few writers do it that the writers who do, I think, actually um, have a lot of success. Do you, what do you think about the concept of networking for writers? Oh, no, I totally agree with it. But I think the thing is, um, and something that we'll talk about a little bit later in the podcast, I'm reading a book at the moment um, about public speaking for authors. And it's um, something that the author of that particular book covers off is that a lot of writers are quite introverted. Mm. You know, if, you, if you're someone who is happy spending hours and hours and hours by yourself with your own thoughts, which, you know, basically is what writing is all about. You really got to be comfortable with your own head if you're going to be a writer. Um, I think that they, that those people can find it extremely difficult. And I know that a lot of the writers that I talk to, just they're just not comfortable being pushed. They feel pushy, you know. It feels pushy to them um, to be sort of meeting and greeting. And I have to say that I don't particularly love networking events, so to speak. Like sure. I'm not someone – and I used to, you know, obviously when I worked – in magazines, I used to have to go to a lot of things and I'd be there with my business card and my, you know, my friendly face on <laughs> talking to people and, and being, you know, the face of, you know, representing my title. Mm. And, um, and, that, and that was sort of like, that was one thing, but going along to represent myself mm. feels in some ways quite fake to me, but I have got used to it and I have sort of made myself do it. And to, the fact is, you know, I really enjoy talking to people mm, mm, mm. Um, as long as I feel like I'm talking to people and not <laughs> networking. You well, know that's I mean? the thing. I think that's um, it's just an attitudinal shift. I used to sort of be, you know, be pretty wary of networking and I used to dread it as well. But then somebody gave me some advice, which I took on board and just transformed everything for me. And I love networking now. And, and that advice was um, if you are in an event and whether it's a networking event or whatever, it doesn't matter what it's termed. But if you're in an event with people in it, pretend it's your own party. That was the advice I got and I and, and it just changed the way I did everything rather than sort of sit in the corner and wait for people to talk to me. I just pretended it was my own party and everyone else was grateful that I did it as well because they wanted to be introduced to other people but I got to meet other people in a natural way and um, and it, it just worked really well for me and that's what, that's what I do to kind of feel more comfortable networking. Well, that's really interesting because I actually hate my own parties. Like I much <laughs> prefer to go to other people's. I really dislike being the centre of the whole thing and feeling like the whole success of everything is on my shoulders. I much prefer to like, I, I, I tend to weasel my way in from the edges and that works really well for me. I sort of start, you know, on the sidelines, meet a couple of people and then gradually gravitate sort of further into the room and but, but that's not but I, I think that's the thing I think people need to find their own way yeah and I and I the only way to do that I think is to practice is I think you just it. you know you've got to make yourself do it and I think that that's something and of course that's why Twitter is such a very very popular thing yeah. with writers because you can without actually having to leave home which is a good <laughs> thing you can network in your slippers and that's on true so what's happening in the writing world this week Okay, well, one of the things that um, is important um, and I think a lot of people are maybe not even aware of is that it is time to claim the ELR slash PLR on your books. If you have a book out or anything like that, um, 
the ELR should probably explain a little bit what I'm talking about. So the, the Australian government has this program called Public Lending Rights, PLR, and Educational Lending Rights, ELR. And what happens is that you essentially register your titles with them and you get a, a percentage of income um, for every time someone borrows that book from a library or if somebody um, photocopies your book, you know, for schools or anything like that, or is used, it's used in schools, you get a percentage of income from it for what they deem to be income that's lost um, in the sense that people who are borrowing your book from the library are not buying it. Yes. So it's, um, it's an interesting thing and it's, it's something that I know that with the established authors, it is something that really adds up. So it's, if you have a, a book out, you know, in the last year, um, it is definitely worth looking into if you haven't, already become aware of it um, it is definitely worth looking into registering your title with that scheme mm. um, and it, you know hopefully you'll be eligible for a little bit of of cash coming your way I think they pay the payments in May but you actually have to make sure that you register by March 31 so um, that's important and that's for authors editors illustrators translators or you know compilers of books and we'll put the link to that in the show notes. So anyone Definitely. who wants to register for your ELR or PLR, have a look at the show notes, which you can find at writerscentre.com.au and uh, look up podcast. Definitely. What else is happening? Well, uh, my attention was caught this week by a little tweet that I saw, you know, somewhere in the Twitterverse. <laughs> um, J.K. Rowling surprises fans with new free Harry Potter book. Cool. And of course, as a massive Harry Potter fan, <laughs> my entire house is full of Harry Potter fans. I got very excited and I went to have a look at it. And basically what it is, is that she is putting up, um, I think last Friday and this Friday, she's putting up the, she put, so last Friday she put up the first chapter of a brand new two and a half thousand word story about the Quidditch World Cup, wow. which, you know, is massive if you're a Harry Potter fan. And mm -hmm. I think next, uh, this Friday, she puts up the second part of that. So if you're interested in it, dipping your toe back into Harry Potter world, um, it's worth having a look at her site and reading all about the history and background of the Quidditch World Cup. <laughs> <laughs> and is she going to put a new chapter up every week? Or no, I think it, it looks like a two-parter at this stage. I'm just looking at the at the story. And it looks like a two-parter at this stage. Um, but she... Look, what I think is the interesting thing about it is that, you know, she has said that she will not... Uh, she, well, she hasn't ruled out going back to Harry at some point, mm. but she has said it's unlikely. But I find it interesting that she keeps, you know, giving the fans a little bit of something every once in a while. Mm. And I think that that's, you know, from an author perspective, you can't you can't beat that as a little bit of, you know, promotion, can you? Yeah. Content, that's content marketing at its highest level. Clever. <laughs> and who knows, there might be another movie, yet another movie that... Um, well, speaking of movies, uh, you know, movies often come with movie trailers, as we know. We see them at the cinemas, we see them on TV, uh, but there's certainly been an increasing trend in books having book trailers. So we wrote a post um, on the Australian Writers' Centre blog this week called Anatomy of a Book Trailer, and we actually spoke to Tristan Banks, the author Tristan Banks, um, on uh, about his book trailers and about his thoughts on book book trailers. I thought it was particularly relevant because um, Tristan has a background in filmmaking and was formerly an actor. So he does, you know, pretty good book trailers, especially the more recent ones. What do you think about the concept of the book trailer? Do you think that they're important for books? Do you think that they work? 
what yeah what what are your thoughts I I am somewhat divided about this because I, obviously I read that post and I read it with great interest because I have um, it just in the last couple of months I've come into contact with several authors who have started using book trailers like they there's something that I, it's been a bit of a slow burn I, mm. I I had a couple of friends who tried them a few years ago and it was sort of not really much happened mm. um, but I think they are a little art form in themselves mm. and as you say I think when they when they got right, they can be, you know, fantastic. Um, do I watch them? Not particularly because I, I'm not a, to be honest, I'm not a huge devourer of video online anyway. I'm, mm. it, it's too slow for me. I much prefer to be able to read it. You know, you know, I, I prefer the transcript to be mm. honest. Yeah. Um, but I look, I think again, uh, you know, if you can do, if you can sum up your book cleverly in a minute or two, mm. um, and it's something that people want to share, well then obviously, yes, you know, fantastic. But it mm. does take a certain skill set to do it. And I just wonder, you know, how many people outside of Tristan have that skill set? Yeah, that's right. Well, I think that, um, it boils down to, you know, uh, I, I've seen more bad book trailers than I have seen good book trailers, unfortunately. Yeah. But yeah. hopefully that's going to um, rationalise and over time, hopefully the, you know, people are going to understand what makes a good book trailer. I have to say that one of the best book trailers I've ever seen ever uh, it was the Four Hour Body by Tim Ferriss. And it, it, yeah, well, you know, he wrote The 4-Hour Workweek and his second book was The 4-Hour Body and then he wrote The 4-Hour Chef, which, you know, um, did all okay as well. But The 4-Hour Body in particular, the book trailer was just something you absolutely wanted to share. You just went, wow, as soon as you saw it. The 4-Hour Chef book trailer wasn't as um, scintillating, in my opinion. Um, <laughs> but he certainly nailed it with the 4-Hour Body and I think set the standard in book trailers. And we'll put that in the show notes as well and, and put the, you know, the link to the video because it's something that people should have a look at and go, if that is the quality of a book trailer, oh, my God, I've got so far to go. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> Obviously, I should have a look at it too then. Um, but what have you been reading this week? Well, this week, as I mentioned earlier, I am reading a book by... Uh, Joanna Penn, who is mm. a prolific uh, blogger uh, yes. about writing, she uh, at the Creative Pen is her is her website, and she writes a lot of stuff about marketing books and and um, you know uh, selling books and writing books and you know all manner of book stuff. So she's worth having a look at. Mm. And her new book is called Public Speaking for Authors, Creatives, and Other Introverts. <laughs> um, now I decided to have a look at it because um, one of the authors I follow on Twitter was was reading it and was like, oh, I'm reading this book and it's fantastic. So there you go. Twitter sells books. I went to, um, so I went to have a look at it and look, I'm, I'm nearly finished with it. And I have to say that I am finding it very interesting. And I think if you are an author or creative or other introvert mm. who doesn't like public speaking, mm. who, you know, finds the whole concept of getting up in front of people very, very sweaty because, mm. you know, that's what happens. Your palms sweat and your mouth goes dry yep. and um, all that sort of stuff. Then I think it's definitely worth having a look at because she goes through step by step the basics of, you know, everything from setting up your room, deciding what you're going to mm. talk about. And, of course, the main thrust of it is that pre preparation is the key. If you mm. are very, very clear about what you're going to say and how you're going to say it. And if you're comfortable, um, she always suggests that you go and have, you know, go to the space 
that you're going to be talking in beforehand. Check it out, see mm. how you feel. Make sure your clicker works, you know, all that sort of stuff. That you're going to feel a lot better about it. So, you know, like that's a, that sounds like a fairly basic message, but I think it's also something that people who don't like public speaking tend to just write the whole thing off. Yeah. Oh, I hate it. I'm not going to do it. Yeah. Um, whereas it can be a fantastic way of, um, of talk, of, you can talk to a lot of people at once, which saves you the whole hassle of moving your way through a 350-person room and introducing yourself. Yeah. And it's a fantastic way of getting your message out and just, you know, of, of raising your profile. So yeah. I think if you're, um, you know, and at, at the, these days you you have to do this kind of stuff. Yeah. You can't stay at home and think that you're going to sell books. Mm. So I think that um, that it's definitely worth a read if you if it's something that you've got any notion that you're ever going to need. Um, now, from my perspective, having done some public speaking myself already, like I really enjoy speaking. Mm. Um, I like, I particularly like panels because I really enjoy bouncing off other people and, you know, you're not up there by yourself. So yeah. it doesn't feel quite so confronting. Mm. Um, but for me, like there was some work, there was some stuff in there about organising your own speaking events. And that sort of thing is what I'm probably interested in mm. at this point because I'd like to do more of that kind of stuff. Um, but what about you, Val? I mean, you talk a lot. Um, I think that uh, I see a direct correlation between book sales and the number of speaking events that I do. So there is wow. no doubt that public speaking sells books, for okay. sure. Um, and obviously, public speaking on something related to your book. So my book is Power Stories. And um, uh, you know, so most of my public speaking has something to do with storytelling or business or that sort of thing, because the book is power stories, the eight stories you must tell to build an epic business. Yeah. So what I try and do is tie the, you know, the, the concept of storytelling and, and business um, together. So it, I think that um, I was actually going to ask you what your, I know you've read the book and she's, and Joanna's got some tips there, but I was interested to find out your tips because one of my main tips, because people do ask me, you know, what's your advice on how I can improve my public speaking? And one of my main tips to people is um, get a coach, get a presentations coach. They are worth their, if you get a good one, they're worth their weight in gold. And for me, it's just transformed the way I speak, the, the way I approach speaking, the amount of time it takes to prepare. And uh, an unexpected byproduct was that it's reduced the amount of preparation time for an event or a speech by, you know, it's like one-tenth of what it used to be. Wow. Yeah, I didn't realise that that would be a skill that I would learn. Um, so I absolutely think that getting a presentations coach or a speaking coach is a absolutely worthwhile investment because they just help you re figure out how to not be nervous. They help you understand how to, you know, work different types of rooms, different sized audiences, you know, and that sort of thing. What's your tip? Well, I've never heard of a presentations coach, so now I think I need to go and get one <laughs> immediately. Um, look, I think my tip is probably just to, um, to, to kind of be yourself, like mm. be the best version of yourself that you can be on a stage. Mm. Because I think that people get so wrapped up in trying to be a speaker mm. that they become stilted and they become, you know, audiences respond to warmth and they respond to personality and it doesn't matter what you're talking about as long as you kind of, if you try to be, I think, as relaxed and as much yourself as possible, I think that you will, um, that they will warm to you as well. I, I mean, that's pretty much all I got until I go to my presentation coach <laughs> okay. and then I'm going to have like heaps. So we'll talk about that then, okay? <laughs>
All right, let's move on to the world of vlogging. I think one of the things that um, I'm seeing more of lately is, and which I think is great, is more authors actually turning to blogging or, or they're starting to blog. And it's something that I know a lot of my author friends have resisted for a long time, but it's actually their publishers or their agents who were telling them that they should consider starting to blog because that is one way for them to build their platform. Um, what do you think about that? Do you think that authors should blog or what should they blog about? Well, I have to say that my, I, I guess my feelings about blogging have changed a lot over the last four years. So I, I started my blog uh, for, yeah, for nearly four and a half years ago. And I started it because a friend of mine who's incredibly savvy online mm. said to me, you need to blog. And yeah. at that point, I was like, why would anyone want to read my blog? Like it, I was really at the beginning, I, I had a manuscript um, that I that my agent was shopping, you know, for fiction. I was writing uh, non-fiction books. Um, I was working very, very hard as a freelance uh, features writer. I mean, I was writing a lot. And the concept of trying to kind of fit this other thing in, particularly for free, I was like, what? Um, <laughs> into my life was was incredibly difficult. But she, she was most insistent. She just said to me, no, like this is the way of the future, Al. Mm -hmm. Writers have to do this. So yeah. I, I, and then she dared me to do it. And of course, I can't resist a dare, so off I went. <laughs> um, now, when I started my blog, I wrote every single day. I blogged seven days a week, and I did that for two years. And oh my god, how could you blog seven days a week? Well, you know, I, apparently I have a lot to say. <laughs> I mean, who knew I had a lot to say? And I and I found it really, really good for my writing because I found myself sitting there. I used to write. I used to do my blog at like ten o'clock every night when I was sort of doing other things. And I sat down every day at ten o'clock, and I thought to myself, right now, what am I going to write about today? Mm -hmm. And for me, it was actually quite useful because I found myself thinking about my day completely differently. Like I didn't want to write one of those, and then I, mm -hmm. and then I sort of blogs. So I found myself writing about snippets, and I found myself writing about writing, and I found uh, just like anything basically to fill a page at that point. And it was great for my writing because I develop. It really helped me develop my voice. Mm. You know, as a in, as rather than a magazine features writer voice, which mm. is very much a broadcast voice, yeah. it helped me develop my own sort of intimate voice. And it was great for that. But I also found um, that at the end of those two years, I I had written, you know, three hundred and fifty thousand words oh or something. God on my blog mm. and I and I thought you know what Al this is ridiculous because you are not trying to be a blogger you mm. are a writer mm. so I cut back and I put I funneled a lot of that energy back into books and I managed to produce I think two manuscripts that year mm. um, and that made a big difference so should authors blog yes I think they should but I think that they need to do it in a rhythm that works for them mm -mm. and what I've, do you think well I've you know, you and I have both discussed previously a post that um, was on Jane Friedman's blog that uh, someone was saying that um, authors should stop blogging. Yeah. Um, because that's where, you know, they're dissipating their creative, you know, 
inspiration or their creative activity yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. And um, I mean, I think that's a bit drastic. I don't think they should stop blogging. I think they should manage their time a bit better, really. Um, well, and <laughs> yeah, there is that. I mean, I do know a lot of writers who won't blog for the reason that they want to put all their creative energy into their books. And I and I do, I can understand, like having been in that camp, mm. in that boat of, of, you know, feeling that I had to do this thing every day, mm. I, I do understand that. And there's also that thing of people, they're like, what do I blog about? Mm. you know and there is that is a very very big question because if you blog about writing all the time mm. you get like I find if I blog about writing I get a lot of retweets I get a lot of traffic I get it you know it's a it's a it's a good subject for me to blog about yes. but what I attract is a lot of other writers yeah and then you sort of think well am I what am I what are my goals for this blog and that's what it, I think that's where you've got to start as an author. If you're going to start a blog, you need to think about why are you doing it. Yeah, I agree. And I think if you're going to, you're, if you're an author and you're blogging to build a platform, the reality is, as you say, I think that if people only write about writing, that's right, you attract other writers. But what you actually want, obviously, is to attract readers. And I think that readers are not only interested in your writing and your thoughts on writing, but also an insight into your life into you as a person so i think that including some elements of personality without revealing you know your private life or anything like that but including elements of your personality or the things that you know you do so that people get an insight into the human being i think that's actually what will um help build your platform more than just writing about writing no that's very true and like i i on my blog my blog is tagged uh writing life and whimsy mm. which i know drives you nuts but <laughs> The fact of the matter is that I, my regular visitors to my blog always say that the posts they like best are the ones about whimsy, mm. the ones where I just sort of reveal some crazy little thought that I've had or I talk about something that's been, you know, something that's been on my mind or, you know, some funny little thing that I saw and they love those posts mm. because those posts, they say, are really an insight into what I'm doing. Yeah, what they I'm connect thinking. to it. Yeah, but very much so. Okay, so uh, who is our writer in residence this week? Our writer in residence this week is Alison Rushby, who is who was the uh, instigator of our working writers tip last week. Yes, um, that's now, the Airbnb in, tip, which was a great tip. That's right. Now, in this particular interview, we talk about the fact that Alison is a she's an established author. She's got a lot of books. She writes across adult and young uh, young adult, um, and she's going into children's books. And she she writes a lot, but she chose. Um, at the, towards the end of last year to start self-publishing and mm. I wanted to talk to her about that and I wanted to ask her why. She's still published with mainstream traditional publishers as well but she also has some self-published stuff. So we talked a little bit about that. Alison Rushby is the internationally published author of, well, lots and lots of books. She has written for adults, young adults and children and recently ventured into the world of self-publishing with the release of her Living Blonde trilogy and her new YA novel, Being Hartley, which was published on March the 1st. Hi, Alison, and welcome to the show. Well, hello, Alison. <laughs> this is going to be like talking to myself, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so why did you self-publish the Living Blonde trilogy? Um, self, the moving to self-publishing was a um, bit of a no-brainer for me because I had a lot of backlist reverted to me, which is a sort of different self-publishing experience altogether. You've already sold that work so it's a bit easier I think to make that decision to self-publish 
So I had four books where the rights had been reverted to me and because I was still actively publishing young adult, I decided it would be a good move to self-publish those. So you, you repackaged them and re-edited them and did a whole lot of work to those, didn't you, before you actually re-released them to Amazon? Yeah, I did. There was a, uh, quite a few years in between um, them being published and them being self-published. And also they were originally published in Australia. So um, And for self-publishing, I wanted to make them um, just a little bit more Americanized, I suppose. And so they were uh, edited and I had, you know, covers professionally made and so on. So Being Hartley is actually a, a totally new work, isn't it, that you've chosen to self-publish. Why did you do that? Um, I decided to do that one um, mainly because my YAs that were original ones published in the US, uh, my editor had moved houses and I just... It was too difficult to um, publish it how I wanted to publish it. So by this point, I'd had my four uh, backlist YAs out in um, self-published in the States. And I thought, you know, I may as well do this one myself. Okay. So how does self-publishing compare for you to traditional publishing? Um, it's very different. Uh, I think that you get a lot of control. Uh, a lot more control than you do in traditional publishing. But with that extra control, um, there's a lot that you lose as well. You have to be sort of eternally vigilant with self-publishing. You're always thinking um, of strategies and how you can bounce the books off each other um, and things like that. So how, how has that worked for you then? I mean, that's, that sounds to me like a lot of extra work. Were you expecting that? Uh, I wasn't expecting, I think, that it would prey on my mind as much as it does. Um, you sort of do need to be thinking all the time more strategically, I think, than you do with traditional publishing. Um, and also because I put out so many books in quick succession, um, five books probably over the space of um, or maybe eight or nine months. Wow. Uh, yeah, that's a lot. So, you know, that's a lot to be going on with for a start, just even things like getting the copy editing and the proof at the same time, but also how you're going to market them, not just separately, but together, because so much of self-publishing is about promoting one book at a time on things like um, BookBub or BookBlast, and then how are you going to work your promotions? Are you going to do a countdown deal on this one? Are you going to price it at 99 cents for a week? Or, you know, it's all about the strategy as compared to traditional publishing. Okay, well, that leads very neatly into a question that I wanted to ask you about discoverability, which is a big buzzword in publishing at the moment, not just in self-publishing, but also, I guess, in traditional publishing, given the number of books that are sort of available and uploaded to Amazon every day and, and um, you know, out there. But it's this business of basically people being able to find you. So I guess, you know, like you, you were talking about the different things that, you know, the, some of the different strategies and, pr and promotional techniques that you can use. But what are your thoughts on this whole concept of author platforms? Do you think that you need to put a lot of work in there to, uh, to assist you with the self-publishing aspect? I I'm not a big believer in things like, um, you know, needing a blog or 10,000 Twitter followers or anything like that. But when it comes to self-publishing, I think your author platform is more about 
how many books you have to offer than it is um, how about how you know many um, Facebook follow you know Facebook friends you have and things like that. You really have to have that larger volume of work where you can bounce the books off each other and lead one book into the next. Right. So people will find one book and then will go looking for more of your stuff. Yeah. Rather than being one single lone voice in the millions on Amazon. Yeah. And I think, you know, there are some really good... I've been reading a lot of self-publishing books as I've been doing this sort of experience. And there's, you know, a lot of good tips to be had out there. You know, things like at the end of one book, you need to have, um, you know, a lead-in so that someone, when a reader gets to the end of that book, they know what to do next. Right. Lead them through the process. Yeah, lead them through the process of finding your next book or what they need to read from you next. Have you read, um, like, what would you say is your sort of self-publishing Bible? Is there, a, is there any one book that you would recommend on the subject? Um, there isn't really because a, a lot of them uh, do sort of speak to different people and different publishing experiences. So I read quite widely and there were some that spoke to me more than others. Um, and certainly some of them I wanted to throw across the room, though I couldn't do that because they were my Kindle. <laughs> don't you hate that? <laughs> no, yeah, don't like the Kindle. But um, I think, you know, everybody's experience is so different that you really do sort of need to be reading widely and you cannot take what one, you know, author says as gospel. You need to look around and see what fits you best because at the end of the day, you will come up with your own formula of what works for your books. So do you think your experience with traditional publishing and you have worked with several different publishers here and overseas has helped or hindered your self-publishing efforts? Uh, I think it's helped a lot Um, but you know you do it has helped in the way that um, I've seen a lot of different things and had a lot of different experiences and that's helped me to see what I wanted to do when I had more control over my books. Okay. Do you think if you were an unpublished author now that you would self-publish first or would you try for a traditional publisher? I think it all depends what you want and what sort of area you're publishing in. Look, if I was publishing New Adult, um, I would seriously look at self-publishing myself. Um, That's such a hot self-publishing area whereas if I was publishing middle grade children's books I wouldn't touch self-publishing with a 10-foot barge pole it's just not an area where you're going to sell very many books. Okay so you need to basically look at what you're writing and work out if it's going to work for you. Yeah I think so. Okay so what was the process for you to becoming a published author in the first place? Oh okay so uh, I did journalism at university, um, and unlike you, I learned that I would be a terrible journalist. <laughs> and, um, I should probably do something else. So I did freelance for a few years for um, web, uh, ma- magazines. Why, were you, why, why did you come to that conclusion? What was it about it that made you think, this is not for me? I just didn't enjoy it. Or maybe that was it was how they presented it, because I think, Um, You know, journalism now offers so many different options as compared to when I went to university in, you know, 96, 97. It's just a different world now. And there's probably lots of different aspects of journalism now that I'd enjoy a lot more than 
yeah. um, writing for a newspaper, yeah. you know, which was what was offered, I think, back then. Um, but I sort of learned pretty quickly that um, yeah, what they were offering me wasn't probably for me. And, I mean, my mother's an author, so that was already there and visible and within the realms of possibility, yeah. I suppose, which yes. is it's not for a lot of people, let's be frank. Yeah. And um, I start, this was when Chiclet was very hot, and I started writing a Chiclet book and sent um, a couple chapters around to a few publishers who, um, not because I think it was a stellar piece of work, but because it was Chiclet, they wanted to read it which made me then finish it quite quickly. And while it wasn't picked up, it led me into writing my second chiclet book, which was picked up and published by Random House in 2000. Right. So, that you know, you make that sound really quite easy. Yeah, no, it wasn't easy. <laughs> <laughs> so well, the thing is, I think I did, I, I fluked that second book. It, um, it sort of came out the right way, whereas I've had other books further down the line have not been so easy to write. So I think I was slightly lucky in that it, it was a solid book that came out when I wrote it. You know, it could have been different if it had been a trickier plot or something like that. Okay, so I, on that note, I read somewhere that you said that everyone writes novels differently, which I would agree with because I know that um, everyone I know seems to work in a different way, but um, that it took you a few books to work out how you wrote. So what did you discover about yourself? How do you write now? Uh, I think one of the things I discovered was sort of reading more about the process of writing and learning about things like three-act structure and sort of how deconstructing a lot of books, I suppose, because, you know, what you do at school when you deconstruct a book, it's pretty simplistic, I suppose. Um, but when you, after you've written a few you can sort of go back and look at, oh, you know, maybe I, that does speak to me when you when you read a how-to book. or um, And, you know, learning about three-act structure was a bit mind-blowing for me. I sort of realised, you know, wow, that, that really works and it works for me and it works for my books and it makes sense to me. And you'll find all sorts of um, different theories work for different writers. You know, what speaks to me will not speak to somebody else at all. Well, because I, I know that you're you're quite a planner and plotter. Um, did you do that with your like with your first couple of books, or that's something no. that's developed? No, not at all. I had I had no idea about how you might do that. Or um, I think a lot of it is organic in that if you are writing a novel, you're probably also a reader. You've probably read a lot of books, and you're quite familiar with story and how it works. Um, so when you do hear writers like Stephen King, who are quite anti-plotting, talk about being anti-plotting, you think, well, I think that that is only because he, you know, has organically learned about how to do what he does. Right. But, um, so I think, I think everybody is a plotter, really. It's just that some of us are maybe a little bit more anal about it. <laughs> oh, no, really? <laughs> so do you write every day? Uh, no. And I really despise when, when other writers say, you must write every day and you must write your 10 pages. And it's like, well, you know, I've got two kids and a husband and a cat and you know what? I can't write every day. That's just not how 
life works. They just had eight weeks off school, didn't they? And I could not write every day. And that's okay. You know, it is not set in stone and you do not need to write every day and life happens, you know. So I think you, if you can manage to keep writing and keep squeezing it in where you can, then that's what really matters. Okay, so you write across a lot of different markets, as we discussed. Um, is that difficult? Um, I think after I have written for a long time now, I suppose, like this is um, 14 years since my first published novel came out for me. So I've simply had to do that to keep things interesting. Right. Um, I think, you know, I started younger than a lot of people start. There's a lot, I'm 40 in a few months and there's a lot of people who just, who start at over 40. Yeah. If, I, if I'd been writing the same thing all the time, I'd be really bored. Yeah, um, yeah, fair enough. Um, you know, I just, I couldn't keep myself interested for that period of time. And also the market changes so much, you know, I st- when I started out, I was so much younger and, um, you know, I just lived a very different sort of life and had different experiences and was writing chiclet and I just I don't think I could write chiclet now it just doesn't speak to me okay so what are you working on at the moment um I have obviously regressed so (laughs) (laughs) in my old age and I am now I have a middle grade book coming out with Alan and Unwin in in September Right, and um, so I'm working on the edits for that. Does that have a title yet? Uh, yes, how to save the universe in ten easy steps. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> the title might have changed a few times, so yes, it's not rolling off my tongue yet. Okay. And, um, and I'm also working on some edits for another middle grade and. Um, Yes. Um, also, you know, working on the publicity for Being Hartley, which just came out on the 1st of March. So that's uh, all keeping you very busy, I would imagine. Yes, but the kids are in school at the moment, so that's good, isn't it? Oh, dear. Yes, that is good. All round, that is good. Um, okay, so what are your top three tips for aspiring authors? I think my top three tips would be, number one, read. Read and read and read and read. Um, you really need to know what is out there and what works and the sort of books you like to read really sort of do tell you what you most likely should be writing, I think. Okay. Um, It always surprises me to find when people read one thing and write something completely different. Um, I always think that that is a bit of a worry. Or, you know, trying to write in one area and... um, maybe because of the market, you know. Yep. So I think, you know, reading what you love and understanding what you love gives a lot to your writing. Um, number two would probably be one for people who are interested in self-publishing is um, coming from a traditional background uh, in publishing. I think you do see the benefits of a really good structural edit a really good copy edit and a really good proofread and a professionally designed cover. Please have a professionally designed cover. Yes, please. Uh, Please do. Um, I think you really can't underestimate those things in um, 
when you're self-publishing your book. Okay. Um, and number three, I, I would say don't worry too much about Twitter and Facebook <laughs> and all the and having a blog and things like that. Just write a really good book that people cannot put down. That at the end of the day, that is all that matters is this fantastic book. Okay, well, thank you so much for that, Alison, and thank you so much for talking to us today. Good luck with being Hartley, and I look forward to finding out the 10 steps for saving the universe come September. Yeah, they, they do come in handy. I <laughs> you never know when they'll be coming handy. All right, thanks a lot. Thank you. That was a great interview. Alison, you know, had a lot of useful stuff to say. Oh, she always does. She's great for stuff like that. She's always <laughs> got a lot to say. What should we say? And so what did our community have to say this week? Well, this week I asked the Australian Writers' Centre Facebook page, which is one of my favourite spots. I put out these questions a couple of times a week and everybody's very enthusiastic with their answers, which I love. Um, so this week I asked them well, what got them through a, through a book. Um, beautiful writing or a great story? What gets you to the end of a book? And I said for the purposes of this exercise, you can't have both, which of course is is nirvana. That's what we're all looking for, isn't yes. it? And I have to say the overwhelming response was, dun, 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 great story. Mm. People are willing to put up with um, not bad writing. There was a lot of, oh, I can't possibly get to the end if the writing's terrible. Mm. But for the, uh, for the most part, if, if the story is cracking along, they will go with it, even if they're feeling that like the writing could be better. So I think that's a really interesting thing for authors to keep in mind mm. um, as well, is that, you know what, I think sometimes we get so worried about, you know, immersing ourselves and putting putting the words together right, but you have to keep an eye on the story. Like mm. the story has to go where the reader, you know, well, where the reader isn't expecting it to go, I think is probably the best place for it. But anyway, so that was the, uh, that was what we asked this week. And what do you think? I have to say, I'm in the great story yeah. camp as well. Mm. I mean, obviously, as I said, the, the combination of the two is what, is what you, you know, what we all desperately want. Yes. But um, I, I'm, quite a plot driven reader yeah. I really I, you know it's it's um it's what I look for is I language is beautiful but I I need it to move forward yeah definitely yeah yeah I think it depends on what mood I'm in at the time usually oh, yeah. it's definitely a great story but sometimes I'm in such a different kind of mood that the if the writing is really bad it kind of hurts my eyes and <laughs> I just can't hurt my eyes anymore look and I also think that I, I think that you know very like that sort of easy reading is incredible well, I can't remember who said it but someone said easy reading is incredibly difficult writing and it's mm. really true it's incredibly difficult to put together a book that feels effortless and yeah. feels like you're just sort of moving along. And it's not, is that beautiful writing? I don't know. I guess it comes down to what your definition of beautiful writing yeah. is as well, mm. um, which is, a, I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think I could ask that on the Facebook page. I'd probably end up in some kind of a massive dust up. But anyway, <laughs> um, what did you discover this week? Well, something that can help people with their oh, beautiful yeah. writing. Um, I've become obsessed with this app. Um, it's currently only for iPhone and iPad actually, but it's called vocabulary.com. So don't search for vocabulary in the app store, search for vocabulary.com and you'll find it. And it is $2.99, but it's, um, it's freaking addictive. 
So, really? Yeah. So what do you do? How does it work? It um, throws up sort of um, a multiple choice question on what a certain word means. So you have to pick the word that, you know, responds to that definition. And you get points, of course. So it's totally a gamification of, um, you know, of yourself uh, where you want to score points and get it all right because you get this great, you know, great job or correct <laughs> <laughs> as opposed to your phone vibrating angrily and turning red if you pick the wrong one. But then it gives you the history and explanation of what the word means. But it also seems to understand your level of skill. So the more you get right, the harder it gets. Oh. Yeah, and so you end up... You know, you do get challenged by it. And I've learned so many, you know, fabulous. I, I kind of knew a lot of the words, but I didn't know the history. So I've learned a lot about that. So it's quite addictive because you learn a lot of trivia that you can probably pull out and wow your friends with or, you know, win at the pub with on trivia night or something like that. Um, and you kind of just sit there in your spare moments and play this funny little word game. That's you know, hilarious. When you're waiting at the dentist with a toothache or something. So this is what you were doing in the waiting room <laughs> with your toothache. <laughs> you're a worry. You really are. <laughs> what's, our, what's our working writer's tip this week? Uh, okay, so for this week I have gone with um, a sauce bottle, which will not be new to a lot of uh, writers, but for freelance writers it's fantastic. Source bottle is a... A website service where you basically put um, if you're the journalist or blogger and you need a source for a story you can post a call out you can say I need you know I'm looking for women who have lost 20 kilos in the last three months or mm. I'm looking for um, men who want to change jobs or you know that kind of stuff and uh, the email goes out to a whole lot of people who have signed up to receive source bottle emails and you get contacted with um, a whole lot of people who are interested in being in your story yep. which is fantastic but they've just put together a new um, service um, as part of source bottle which basically um, experts, um, so, you know, psychologists and doctors and financial planners and all of those kinds of people can create a profile and they will be matched up with PRs and journals. So if I send out a thing saying that I, um, you know, I'm looking for case studies, for example, of men who want to change jobs, mm. um, that particular, um, I will also get back from Source Bottle some suggested experts that I may wish to use in my story. So they may be financial planners or they may be career change experts or they may be um, somebody with expertise in that area um, as well. Now, there's a small fee for experts to create their profile, but the service is free for journalists yeah. and bloggers and freelance writers. And um, look, from my perspective, like Source Bottle, I think, is a great place to go if you – like I've used it in the past – for very specific case studies mm. where I haven't been able to source them out of my usual network yeah. um, or I haven't been able to find an association. Generally speaking, I look for an association. There seems to be an association for everything these yeah. days. Um, but uh, if I can't do that, I will go to Source Bottle. Um, and, uh, you know, I have found case studies that way, but I have also found that I have to wade my way through a lot of um, people, like there's a lot of small business people out there who yep. can probably find their way to fit any case study suggestion that you might need. <laughs> and um, sometimes that's not necessarily what you want. Um, so, yeah, look, it is, it is a fantastic resource for people who are just really 
um, you know, as I say, I use it as a last resort, mm. but I try to use my own networks first. Yeah. And what about you? Like, I mean, have you oh, used Source Bottle in the past? I love Source Bottle. I think yep. it's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I'm the same as you. I try and tap into my own networks first, but then sometimes, um, you know, I do put a call out on Source Bottle. And, you know, sometimes the responses aren't great and I don't end up using it, but sometimes they are spot on and they yeah. are perfect. And I'm so grateful that, <laughs> that the, um, you know, service exists. So I think Source Bottle is great and we also teach it in our course, you know, magazine we newspaper do. Yeah. writing um, at the Australian Writers' Centre that this is one way that you can find, particularly, you know, if you're looking for a um, juggling unicycle rider who's lost 20 kilos in the state of Victoria. Mm. <laughs> You know, you can precisely <laughs> yes. You can get really specific and I just, put it I, out look, there. I just think it's fantastic because I remember when I first, you know, it makes me sound really old, but when I first started out doing these kinds of stories, mm. you know, and and you had to make phone calls and you were constantly yeah. ringing your friends saying, "Do you know anyone yep. who is a juggling unicyclist <laughs> in Victoria who's lost twenty kilos?" And you get to the point. I mean, I got to the point where my friends would not answer my phone calls anymore. <laughs> They're just like, "No, Al, I don't want to pose naked with Leo." You know, I'm like, please. You know, so you know, from that perspective, like these kind of services are just invaluable, and I totally wish they'd been around when I was starting out because I think when you're starting out, this kind of stuff. Can can be so incredibly useful. <laughs> I remember you making those phone calls, Al, when I used I to know. sit next to you at Clare so. <laughs> You know what I used to think was hilarious? If I had to find 10 guys to pose naked for Cleo, I would have them within an hour. If I had to find 10 women to pose naked for Cleo, it used to take me like two weeks and I'd have to ring every single person in the known universe that I had ever heard of and start just like making cold calls out of the phone book half the time. So it's just, it's it's an, it was always a very, very interesting exercise that. Okay, so did that happen often that you had to get people to post naked? Yes, <laughs> a lot more often than I was comfortable with, let me tell you. Like it was just, they were always beautiful shots. It was, yes. you know, it was showing women of different body sizes and, and how, you know, how men really look naked and all that kind of stuff. I mean, they're all very useful stories, but <laughs> just imagine me on the other end of the phone ringing Ooh. saying, oh, look, I just need someone to post naked in front of up to a million people. <laughs> I don't have How do you to feel imagine. About that? I don't have to imagine how I sat there. No, of course you don't. I heard it. Anyway, so that come, brings us on on that note. Um, that brings us to towards the end of our podcast. What are you up to this coming week? Oh, I'm so boring. I am right. <laughs> I'm just, that's all I'm doing at the moment. I'm just so incredibly obsessed with, with getting the first draft of this book down mm -hmm. and, you know, of course, doing, you know, meeting all my other commitments as well that I'm just writing. And I was thinking to myself last night that if I could find someone to deliver meals to my house and feed oh, my children, yeah. I would be all yeah. over that right now. Mm, just to feed me, even I would have. Oh. <laughs> no, it's yeah. not even me. It's just kids are hungry constantly. Every time mm. I turn around, somebody wants food. I'm like. Mm. I just gave you food. What do you mean you need it again? <laughs> what about you? What are you doing? I think by the time this podcast goes to air, I'll actually be in San Diego at Social Media Marketing World. Uh, but I am flying back um, uh, just to host the meetup with Tristan Banks that we're having um, in Sydney. So Tristan Banks, the children's author um, and maker of book trailers, we're having a meetup with him 
on uh, the 1st of April in Sydney. So that's going to be really fun. I first met Tristan when, you know, we were walking the halls of uh, Pacific magazines back in the days when it was in William Street. And I think he was writing for TV hits and I was writing for a girls magazine or something. And it was shortly after he um, had finished acting on Home and Away and he decided he was going to embrace his new career as a writer. And, you know, 20 years later, he's one of Australia's most successful authors. Um, And uh, so I'm really looking forward to that. So if anyone's interested, that's at writerscentre.com.au. Look under community and then meet up. We'll put the um, the link in the show notes. But one thing I would love to ask our listeners is if you are enjoying this podcast, um, we would love to have a review from you on iTunes. That would be fantastic. Yeah, that would be fantastic. We'd really appreciate it. We won't beg or anything. Won't beg. (laughs) (laughs) We'll just put it out there in the universe and see what happens. And in terms of if people want to find you, Alison, where do they go? Uh, they will find me at alisontate.com and all my links to all my various, you know, social media outlets are right there. And we'll put uh, that link in the show notes as well. And I'm on valeriekoo.com. Thank you for listening, everybody. Goodbye. Bye.